Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me, Steve Hall, as always. And today I'm joined by the one and only Mike Isratel for another Q&A. Uh, we are recording this early, uh, for me at least, or actually I guess it's kind of somewhat late for Mike um, in that it, it's uh, kind of in the middle of the night slash really early in the morning the next day. And Mike said, "This is is this the first time you've kind of struggled sleeping, Mike? Is it just now or has it been a while now? So struggled, not not even remotely the first time on this diet. Really, really struggled. Uh, this is the worst night. It's also the last night of my true de- deficit uh, of this entire diet, which has lasted. Let me try to count. I got to scroll back a long time to count. So I'm giving you. Almost exact number of weeks. One, two, uh, three, four. Oh, wait, so June, right? Yeah, June. It's crazy that I'm going back to June. <laughs> um, three, four, five, six. Seven, ten. 22 weeks of straight dieting with a few weeks of backing off to maintenance at most, um, mostly hypocaloric um, at various stages, tons of cardio the entire time. Uh, hard training and before that i did five weeks of kind of like maintenance basically um a little bit of a mini mass sort of and then before that was 14 weeks of hypocaloric dieting so it's been an interesting year but i got really lean um so that's cool mission accomplished and then for those interested um covid's really thrown a a loop yeah uh, and um i guess i can i guess i suppose i can talk about it now i wanted to keep it a little hush hush until it sort of resolved but um i was supposed to do a show uh, a few weeks back um to qualify for masters usa's in the united states and pc um but i got covid like uh, the two days before the show oh shit yeah, I got sick and I was like, man, I better go get tested. And uh, I did. And they were like, you have COVID. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I was like, you know, I'm not going to compete. The number one reason, and, and my wife's a doctor, and she really pounded this into me to whatever extent. I wasn't convinced by it. I was mostly convinced to begin with, but uh, to whatever extent, um, uh, she didn't uh, that I wasn't already thinking that she was like, look, you're not going to go get a bunch of people sick at a show. And I was like, yeah, okay. That's a really good point. And uh, so for that, and also you don't want to move body water around and uh, play with your blood volume when you have a, a potentially fatal coagulative disease, uh, which COVID has coagulation effects. So I was like, okay. Um, I'm not going to compete, but I was like already executing the peak. And then I have some pictures from that peak and it went like really well. And I was like, holy crap, like I have Christmas tree and 
administrations. I'm sure you've seen some of those pics on, on online. I just negated to mention that that was COVID positive, the full-blown like flu the entire time. So I had COVID and it actually just lasted uh, about five days. Um, uh, and then after five days, I was mostly fine. After seven, I was 98% fine. And after 10 days, I was like, like it never happened. Um, also, luckily, luckily, I got it the first day of the easiest part of the deload. Uh, which because you know was the beginning yeah, pretty well timed peak for the show so really uh i had the next week of hard training the first week the first two days uh first three days i went really easy enough to get some kind of mv stimulus maintenance volume and uh i did it of course at home because i was um, uh, still away from the population. And then I did the rest of the week's workouts at home, but I progressively pretty hard. And by the end of the week, I was pretty good to go. And then the next week, I was already cleared to be able to go into population. Um, and then I trained super hard and it was fine. And then everything was fine. And and now I'm like weeks and weeks away from when I had it. And I feel golden. I'm back to doing jujitsu. And uh, today I rolled hard and Breathing wasn't an issue. Nothing was an issue. Everything's fine. So that was really cool. Um, not to make too fine of a point of this, but just to make sure, like, you know, we're all, and I hate this part because I think it's all, it's really presumptuous, but I suppose we're all like uh, setting some sort of standard or people look up to us or some stupid shit like that, which is like, you know, maybe they should just look up to us in fitness, but I know that we set the standard for other um, maybe scientifically based thoughts. So I will mm. say this, my experience with COVID-19 was like a third as bad as the flu. It was a fucking joke. But I have an aunt who's in her mid seventies and not in good shape. And she currently is on a respirator. She will very likely die from COVID-19. So I don't want to paint my experiences like book COVID bro just inject more trend <laughs> you know um the shit is real as fuck man it kills a shitload of people it's about as bad as the flu and if very few people are immune to the flu uh the shit ravages a population and is it a big deal in the grand grand scheme no fuck no it's not a big deal is it a big deal to lots of people especially those that are of ill health to begin with it's a fucking huge deal um, and then it makes the vaccines, especially, and some of the lockdowns and stuff in some measures worth the conversation at the very mm. least. So that's kind of my two cents about that. But in any case, um, I sort of died, died right through COVID, uh, trained more or less right through it. And um, now I'm in the shape of my life. Uh, really weird shit is going on with my body. Um, I did cardio to failure a couple of times to where like I had to, uh, I was walking, walking, walking. And uh, I was like, oh, I can't stand anymore. So I had to sit down. Um, that's fun. And that's the good like body's Low good. blood sugar. Uh, Steve, I actually have no idea what it is. Um, <laughs> my, my best guess is, is definitely low blood sugar contributes, but it's not an acute hypoglycemic episode. Okay. What it is, is it, I think, is uh, evidence of the central governor model of fatigue. That's what usually fatigues you when you're in an endurance race. Is your body is detecting incredibly low fuel stores and incredibly low ability to perform. And it sort of gives you your brain, the central nervous system, a hard cut off of like, shut up, sit down. <laughs> so it makes you kind of like wow. very fatigued feeling and very like, oh, like my eyes start to close, um, stuff like that. Uh, and this also happens, uh, tends to uh, correlate with also low estrogen environment, which I'm in right now. Jared had just done his peak uh, uh, 
to get his pro card, which was really crazy. And he got to a level of lean, which I've never actually seen in person before outside of a bodybuilding stage, like with a friend. And I was like, is he going to die? Like he had shit going on with his body. That doesn't make any sense. And he was like, like a zombie for the last week and a half. It was just like his eyes would close. He was barely cognizant. He could wake up for training and cardio. And that was really just about it. He could do his work. Nick would watch like TV and he'd be like, and I'm like, are you, you good? And he's like, not really, you know, but it's, it's funny. So I'm in that situation now. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. And now it's, uh, it's all about getting the peak done. I have, um, with COVID, who the fuck knows, but I have a show planned for like a week and a half from now. And then another one, hopefully half a week after that, hopefully these shows are like, I'll show up and look pretty decent. That'll be really cool. And it'll be something to check off the list and keep the momentum going and transition into a mass phase and get, much bigger. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if, if a show for some reason, if COVID really goes crazy and they lock everything down and a show doesn't work out at the very least, I'll post, we'll continue to post, I guess. Um, I'll execute a peak for sure and post some really gnarly pictures, but, um, at the very least I've already posted, you know, pictures with like really gnarly glutestrations and stuff like that and veins everywhere, which for me is like, you know, um, I think I successfully this cut got the uh, monkey off my back of like, can I get lean? really lean. Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, now the monkey on my back is, can I peak for a show? And I think we reason to believe that it's probably going to be a bit more straightforward because we have a lot of stuff worked out about how that process works. Um, and with Jared, that was the big monkey on his back. He had gotten lean before, but the peaking, especially on the special sports supplement mm-hmm. side, because it's funny, he's turned himself pro naturally and he's turned like 20 other people natural pro. And the way you peak it natural is way different water and salt wise and carb wise than you peak someone who's on special sports supplements. And he finally figured it out with, with Broderick's help and, and, and so on and so forth. And reading a ton, investigating a ton, experimenting a ton, he figured it out, but he didn't just figure it out. I mean, he fucking knocked it out of the park. I don't know if you've seen those pictures from his yeah. um, nationals win, but like some shit was going on with his body. He was just straight up ran out of body fat. Um, I happened to be there in person for his victory. And it was really magical because they brought him out. They put him center stage. They never moved him. And they just, just, he just walked right back in the lineup and everyone was like, well, that guy won. And yeah. the entire time it was all for second place. So it's, it's really cool. The uh, sort of mini vindication and kind of a, a, a great realization process of sort of unlocking the mechanism, the mystery of how all this works. Cause there's a lot of factors at play and, and, and just to, while I'm ranting, just to say something, I think the viewers may find interesting there's a lot of folks in the industry, the prep coach industry, especially the special sports supplement side of it, which are like, you know, which say something pretty wise that is like, you know, we go meal by meal and hour by hour and we change the plan of peaking to adjust. And so that sounds really good. And in large measure is, except there's a complexity there. Um, the complexity is that recompartmentalization exists. And that is when you ingest fluid or fluids, they don't just end up in the intramuscular compartment or in the subcutaneous compartment, just like right away. Mm. You eat a meal, it's first, it's actually not technically inside your body. It's within your salamic cavity, which is like your organs and stuff, but they're not like it's technically sort of outside your body. It has to enter first the bloodstream in the splanchnic circulation. And then it has to go from the bloodstream to some intracellular or uh, extracellular component like inside the muscle or under the skin and that all takes time and transitions so if like you eat a meal 
And then you just like, oh, fuck, it just bloated me up. And I don't feel any fuller 30 or 40 minutes later, an hour later, you could be like, oh, it's time to cut the carbs. Like uh, it's too much food. You know, so there's a delayed effect there. And some of the recompartmentalization can take up to or in excess of six hours, which really complicates matters, right? So what you really do, the way you really peak somebody, especially somebody taking special sports supplements, for example, diuretics, um, you do some, some, some things, and then about six hours later, you look at the response. And then you do some things. And about six hours later, you look at the response. And that's how you play it. But if you just do meal by meal or just hour by hour, you can get a lot of sort of countervailing things. Um, you know, it, it's like a, an easy analogy would be like, okay, like Britain fighting Germany in World War II. Okay, okay how do we really fight Germany? Like, do we just send bombs and bullets and just try to kill Germans? Well, we don't have any bombs and bullets yet or not enough. So we even need to boost industrial capacity. But like for a few months while you're boosting industrial capacity and physically making tanks and bombs and bullets and guns, what you're doing is like your money's going like this. Your actual number mm. of ready soldiers with bullets and guns don't move at all, except they have less money to take from the general pot of the gross domestic product. And, and, and you're thinking, you're like, what the fuck? Like, can you imagine being like a, a leader, like Churchill, and being like, so like, uh, are we winning the war yet? And they're like, well, actually, we have zero hardware fighting more than you at checked last time, which was a month ago. What the fuck are you guys doing? Right? But it turns out, like, let's say it's six months. And then six months later, there's 10,000 more tanks, 10,000 more planes, bullets, soldiers that are well-trained, et cetera. Just like recruiting, like you get soldiers in and you have useless pieces of shit for weeks on end until they get through their six-month training course or whatever, six-week training course, and then they're, they're useful. So that delayed thing is a real, real mindfuck. Uh, and if you don't know how that delay works and precisely what variables to manipulate, it's really confusing and potentially perilous. So Jared has been working all that out. Now he knows it really well for himself and a lot of other people too. He's helping me out this time. Uh, hopefully my uh, approach goes well. I'm a complicated case because I tend to store a lot of body water. Uh, he's not nearly as complicated. He doesn't tend to store as much, but he can if he makes the wrong moves. So it's a complex thing here. Now mm. I sort of know why, why pro bodybuilders hire hire prep coaches. You know, it's it's not it's not intuitive. Yeah, uh, some of the stuff. So that's you my said update. I was just going to say you, you said a lot. I have I have one thing initially on mind. I want to say first of all, really sorry to hear about your aunt. Hopefully you're wrong, but um, I guess Flame you're wrong. being realistic. Uh, I'm also sorry to hear about your show because I know last time you were looking to compete, you got ill for that one as well. So there seems to be a bit of a maybe third time lucky or something going on here. Let's yeah, hope we'll for see. that. Uh, and then my only other thought was like you're talking there in terms of how long time, like time wise, some of these things take. I know like even natural guys, a lot of them will start like ramping carbs up on show day, for example. And that might help if they're doing like a PM really late in the evening but it's really like water, sodium, they're the things that are going to make short-term changes to their physique. So if they're looking flat, it's maybe they need more water and sodium and not like a shed load of carbohydrates, for example. So it gets that mistake is not just by the natural scene, like you said, is way more simple, but still people make really kind of poor calls on those sort of things as well. For sure. And like I think an ingestion of especially fast digestion carbohydrates can within 30 minutes give you a high degree of vascularity because it can get into the blood supply at that point, but it won't fill you out. Like you're not going to have fuller muscle 
muscles in 30 minutes. You want to fill the muscles in two hours. So that's a great point, Steve. Yeah, people do make that mistake in, uh, in natural bodybuilding as well. So it's a learning process. For sure. And yeah, I just hope, I hope you can bring it to stage because I mean, COVID has been, I mean, this year has been a complete screw around and you literally had the worst of it there. And I think, not that I think this is really something to necessarily be pretty proud of, but I know a lot of bodybuilders who will have got to the point you got to and who would have just been like, I'm taking it to stage. I feel okay. I'm going to go compete because this is what I've been doing all year. And so I just think it's so great that you've like, you're, you're not, and I'm not surprised you're not, that's the right thing to do. Um, but I think unfortunately there would have been people that would have just decided to compete and selfishly taken it to stage. So I'm really glad that, yeah, I mean, you've kind of, hopefully that message holds people kind of to a moral high ground. Sure. Yeah. And there's, I guess, you know, virtue signaling sucks. The crazy SJWs ruined it for all of us. But sometimes, you know, you can Captain America your way to some shit that's probably just more right than wrong. You know what I mean? Like your inner Eric Helms. It's like, you know, like, am I a warrior here or am I just a piece of shit? And maybe there's not a fine line between the two, but maybe there's like you're on a bit more of one side of the spectrum than the other. And, uh, you know, COVID sucks so much that the whole thing um, of the, the degradation of our normal way of life, that like the sooner, the less of a big wave we have and the sooner it ends, the better. And the good thing is, is there's now around the world currently, as of this recording, there are four viable vaccines that are highly, highly effective. And by the spring, they're going to be in mass circulation and COVID's going to start to be pretty much over and then it'll be a memory. And in and, and people, um, I think it's worth reminding people that some people are getting, they get this like, well, shock effect where they're like, no, you don't understand. It's the new normal. It's always going to be around. You know, like the flu, like 1918 flu pandemic was like the real deal, way more fucked up than COVID. Um, and then it was over and then it wasn't a thing. You know, like you didn't hear people in World War II being like, I'm still dealing with the flu pandemic. Like this just wasn't a thing. It was like, you know, a uh, matter of fact, two years later, it wasn't a thing. So um, it's, um, it's going to be over. It will be over. And if we can, if we can hasten that process and do less damage along the way, I think it's probably a good thing. Yeah. Awesome. Should we get into some questions? Yeah, this is yeah, for sure. Well, I'm going to ask now, actually, before we get to the end, where is the uh, the book on the cards? Because I know I'm pretty sure you're looking to release it in like the next few weeks. So I know people next few weeks. Hear. Yeah. The graphics guy is physically like all the text is written, edited, all the figures are made, edited. He's just like physically putting it together. And in the next two or three days, we get one final look at it and then it goes to our marketing team, which decides awesome. when it's best to release it and how, you know, we're like making the cover right now. So yeah, that's really, it's going to be, it's going to be really cool. Yeah, it's going to be a really good book. Which uh, chapter is your personal favorite? If you have one. I hate all of them. <laughs> um, overload chapter two, I think, uh, unless we count the intro as a chapter. Um, it's meaty. God damn, it's meaty. It's like 30 or 40 pages and it introduces raw stimulus magnitude and all these concepts and really talks about them at a deep level. Nice. So that like, if you've been watching the YouTube videos, if folks have been tuning into the Revive Stronger interviews here, you know, we've been hinting at and even explaining to considerable depth some of these concepts, but this really fleshes it out and it's awesome to have it in written format so that you can really study it. And you could really understand it. MRV, MEV, all that other stuff, really, really well explained for hypertrophy. So that like 
how does overload work for hypertrophy? That chapter just destroys that shit. And you're really going to be able to understand, okay, what does it mean to train hard for muscle growth? Once you read the overload chapter and really sort of digest it, it's going to be a lot of like, oh, wow, like this is kind of like a code that unlocks a lot of answers. Oh, hopefully, or I was like schizophrenic when I wrote it and, and then it's just a whole bunch of nonsense. We'll, so we'll Fast, efficient fat loss. Does that sound like music to your ears? The mini cut movement might just be for you. Mini cuts are like robbing the fat bank. You want to get in and out with as much fat as possible. In a short period of time, you could easily look to lose six to 12 pounds of fat. The mini cut movement is excellent. There's group support for extra accountability and also expert help within the group. We have educational videos to keep you on track along the way and you get all your nutrition and training customized and individualized for you. So if that sounds of interest, get involved with the mini cup movement. I know I always say the scientific principles of strength training for me was like that matrix a little bit. And I know you've definitely expanded upon that. And like, I've seen more uh, come from that. But I know when you I know just from writing things, but particularly long form content, when you write, you feel like you know something really well. And then you're like, oh, and you learn new stuff just by writing. So yeah. I know there's going to be some nuggets in there that you've probably never touched on when we've chatted or you've talked on like uh, RP Plus and everything. Tons. It's the synthesis of all the stuff we've sometimes merely been hinting at for the last several years. And I'm really happy this book is coming out because I'm so tired of directing people to random YouTube videos. You know, people say, where do you really get into like this concept of SFR? Where do you get into raw stimulus magnitude? Where do you get into fatigue management? And it's like, oh, uh, the hypertrophy book. It's just going to be this thing where like, just get the fucking book. I don't know, pirate it or something. You know, I'm sure that'll be a thing. Uh, but like, it's just, just get the book and then, and then read it. And then what, what is also really cool, I think this is just a wonderful way about our, the way our community works is a lot of folks will read the book who have nothing to do with RP or work for RP, they're just sharp folks that maybe have a master's degree, maybe an undergrad, maybe they're just self-taught. They're going to start to understand these concepts really, really well. They're going to be able to disseminate them to other people. Like people will ask questions on random IG pages, maybe mine, maybe yours, but maybe a bunch of other ones. They're like, hey, like, how do I know I'm getting a good workout for hypertrophy? And they'll be like, ah, 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 actually, I can answer this. It's three things. And then uh, well, how, what, where are you getting this? Oh, well, here's this book. Uh, so they'll be able to read the book and really just pass it on because like it's it's trippy for me to see like um, meme pages, like pretty popular meme pages on Instagram for powerlifting using fatigue management as just this regular thing. Like everyone knows what it is. James Hoffman and I brought that shit to the industry in like 2014. Nobody, nobody outside of Dr. Stone's grad school program ever talked about fatigue management. It wasn't even a term. Uh, you would in 2014, you say fatigue management to powerlifter, they'd be like, what? Like, are you a shift worker? Are you tired after a factory or something like that? And now it's just like a regular parlance. And it's just really cool. So, uh, and you know, like, it's not like, like, yeah, fuck, we invented that. We need the credit, bro. Mm -hmm. Fuck that. Like, we have enough fucking accolades. It's just great that those ideas can sort of spread out and people can just find out about them. And then we can all speak a bit more clearly and understand a little bit more about how training works. And um, I think my goal as a, as a professional in the industry, and maybe yours too, Steve, let me know if I'm mischaracterizing you, is like just for, if we were just to get Thanos, you know, out and gone tomorrow from this earth, maybe we contributed to people doing a little bit less wrong shit and a little bit more right shit. And if that's the case, however it happens, I think that's great. You know what I mean? Like, can yeah. you imagine going, you and I go back to a gym in the 1960s and watch people exercise and, and talk about diets and be like, 
oh my God. And they're like, well, what are the 2020s like? And they're like, they're better. <laughs> like more people are doing, because you know, nowadays, like, regular moms at the gym are like, oh, I do, I'm doing macros. You're like, oh my God, in the yeah, 60s, yeah. nobody did fucking macros. Are you kidding me? Like I had a calorie deficit, like cardio, like I'm, you know, I'm burning off fat. And it's like, wow, like, you know, yeah, people still wrap, wrap themselves and still have fit tees, but less, fractionally less people because back in the 60s or whatever, the only thing there was was fads, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and now there's a bit better and hopefully in 2040, but before the machines take over, most of the things can be evidence-based, you know, like medicine, for example, used to be entirely not evidence-based. And now everyone knows like when you really get sick, you see a real doctor. Uh, so hopefully our industry is kind of headed in that direction and maybe we can help along. The way, so. Yeah, for sure. I think that comes very much across, uh, I know RP, your your kind of goal was to have the giant octopus and uh, take over somehow that way. So <laughs> that's also in the works, I hope. <laughs> of course, I can't comment on that legally. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, I think everyone listening is going to be so hyped for that book, uh, particularly now after that chat. So we get to questions now. Uh, and the first mm. question is from Jim Rat, and he has asked, how much of a difference... That's not his real name, is it? <laughs> no, it's definitely not his real name. Uh, it's his real member member name. Uh, how much of a difference does it make whether one goes from 4 to 0 RAR throughout a mesocycle beating the previous week's performance every week or whether one starts closer to failure and maybe at 2 RAR keep static RAR except of the last week where one goes all out? So the question basically is, how important is it to beat performance week to week within a mesocycle? How important is progressive part of overload principle within one mesocycle? In a very general sense, like on a population level, if hundreds and hundreds of people are training, not very. As long as they're training decently hard, it's fine. But there is uh, two different ways we can approach this question. One is on a population level, what tends to work pretty well and this roughly equivalent, something like um, if you feed half of the United Kingdom pancakes or waffles by random, will they roughly equivalently enjoy the breakfast? Probably, you know, they're both good. There's another question though of as an individual, what do you prefer, pancakes or waffles? A lot of individuals can have a very, very, you know, strict opinion about that be like you know i really don't like pancakes and i love waffles and other people you know like ah whatever i don't care or it's by the mood so if you're going to give yourself the best possible chances of success population average data no longer works that well for you uh it's kind of like a lot of the research that's been summarized lately by eric helms and his colleagues and greg knuckles and eric trexler about uh, the individualization of training volume, like not just do higher volumes work better than lower, which is a good first question to ask. And the answer to that was generally yes. But it's a good, based on your own volume history, does raising or lowering volume make you more jacked? And the answer is on average, but not entirely for everyone, raising your volume work. So it's kind of like we don't so much care, you know, is 12 sets a week better, 18 sets a week better? Yeah, okay, on average, 18 is better, but averages don't do much when you're the individual. When you're individual, we can ask a deeper mm. question of, what did you do last month? I did 14 sets. Well, yeah, maybe try 16, right? So with the IRR thing, here's the deal. If on average you hit roughly two RIR, you're good. That's a really good way to train. 
The question is, how can you be sure? Well, we know from the literature and just from gym experience and working with, with for you, what must be with your company, thousands of clients by now, people can get that shit really wrong. And what they think two RIR is can either be zero RIR the entire time, which means it's a mesocycle of excessively high fatigue and needlessly unimpressive progression and a needless re requirement to deload way more frequently than necessary and expose yourself to higher injury risk and so on and so forth. Or it can be, and no joke, um, and I'm sure you've seen this, six RIR the entire time. Like, you see, if you've had clients before that were there two RIR, it really was a six you found out at some point, yeah? Like, yeah, you have to have to check form. Like, it's like a strict, you can't give someone a program without checking their, like, form videos now because otherwise, yeah. unfortunately, some people take it the wrong way and they, they just think, oh, yeah, four RIR is easy. It's like, no, six RIR is easy. <laughs> four right. RIR shouldn't really be right. easy. Really. And some people think two RIR is pretty easy. Yeah. And then it turns out that's six RIR, right? So how do you really know if you're within that four to zero RIR spectrum? Because being in that spectrum is, is really what we want. And two RIR is that average beautiful place to be. That's great. If we could just nail it every time, great. But we can't because we can't be sure. So what do you do? You start at roughly four, or you can even start at roughly two. But starting at four gives you a good big window. You start at roughly four, and then what do you do? You increase the performance a little bit every week. You push yourself a little bit further so that if eight weeks later, you're still increasing performance and you haven't had a deload, you are not either. You were four RIR and you get unbelievable amount of fitness, which is great, or you really weren't at four RIR. And now you're at two RIR finally or zero RIR and you really, were at six RIR to start so that for your next mental cycle you know not to start as easy so the real ticket here and i we, I, we do have a video on renaissance periodization about this match or beat rep system uh, rep and weight system that we talk about that you should try to match or beat by a slight margin by either reps or weight or both whatever you did last week in all of your exercises just by a little bit because if you start at what you think is roughly four IR and you keep doing that either you become world's strongest man uh, you just keep going, or you eventually hit true zero RIR or failure. And then once you hit failure, you have an unbelievable amount of like, like this data descends and colors the entire rest of the metal cycle backwards. Like, oh, this is zero RIR. I know this, this, this was that, that, that. And then next week after deloading, I can start at this because I know this was mm -hmm. probably about three RIR. Now I know what that was. That makes sense. And you can even look back in your mind and be like, what did that feel like two weeks ago? Okay, that was three RIR. Interesting probably three RIR, because I know this is zero and this was two, one, blah, blah, blah. So if you never do push it proactively like that, and this is called proactive progressive overload, not reactive, um, then you, you bump into these zero RIR bumps every now and again, and they give you this, the most possible accurate picture of are you doing a good job to actually get in that window. They paint the rest of the window for you. They paint the road for you. Um, it's kind of like if you're driving in bumper cars, like go-karts with, you know, bumper so you can't leave the road and you really need to know how wide the road is. If you're driving them blind and you just try to stay at two RIR, which is right in the middle, 
you may never actually figure out how wide the road is because you never hit anything. You go from start to finish, it's a straight line. And you're like, oh, I guess I don't know how wide the road is. But if you veer this way and veer that way and you hit the bumps, you're like, okay, I know roughly how wide the road is because I hit these bumps. It's not that hitting the bumps is a good thing. There's probably nothing magical. There's probably nothing too magical about truly going to failure. But it really does let you know how close to failure had you been this entire time and it lets you really, really calibrate things because you could be underdoing it or you could be overdoing it. I mean, look, if you, if you seek to progress a little bit and at week two you hit failure, bro, you're starting out too hard. Man. Uh, and if you really seek to progress uh, and, and at week six you haven't hit shit yet and you're still cranking along, maybe you started out too easy. So on an average population data sense, and especially granted that we're able to guarantee or have high likelihood that we do truly hit two RR. It's totally great. It's totally fine. You don't need to go from four to zero RR. There are some exotic arguments that will be presented in the hypertrophy book that maybe that progression is better than not, but it's by a tiny, tiny little bit. Um, you, but it is super, super helpful to be able to proactively push to know, okay, am I actually average of two RR of this mesm? Or am I not? And I really am a stickler for that. I haven't heard a, heard a good argument against it yet, um, which is why I'm not the biggest fan in the world of a real-world approach of just hitting 2RIR or whatever for weeks on end. Because how do you know? Yeah. Um, and sometimes we tend to bitch out, especially with big weights, man. I mean, you're over there squatting 150 kilos plus. You know, you squat 150 one week, week two, you could squat 150 again and sort of pretend to yourself like I really was 2RIR, I'm really tired. But if you have this proactive approach in mind, you're, you know, I'm squatting 152.5. And the next week I'm squatting 155 and then 157.5. And then five weeks later, you're squatting 160 and you're doing the same reps. And you're like, oh my God, I'm, I really had amazing high quality workouts. I have really tested my limits and know what they are. And I might not have done this much actual overloading and I might have taken it too easy because anything past 150 on your back just fucking sucks and you don't want to add any more weight. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Yeah, I think uh, just from personal experience, that kind of setting i call it like the overload threshold of relative intensity being like that three to four rar mm -hmm. when you you think you're pretty much there reps have started to slow down it's getting hard you're getting kind of some disruption within the muscle from that set and things and then just each week rather than targeting oh i have to reduce my rr by one rather than doing that just adding either a rep or a small amount of load that just does that anyway takes the thinking Maybe. out of it completely and mm -hmm. uh, my clients have way preferred that type of thing versus previously they had like targeted RERs and they're just like, it's, I don't know if so I was at 200. <laughs> oh my God, it's such a mind fuck to do that. I used to try to do that. I just fucking quit. I started doing the rep match or beat system because I like, there's so much swirling of like, am I being dishonest? Am I not tough enough? Am I too tough on myself? Like we're not very good at gauging RER. And this is coming from, I've been training for 21 years now. It's still a fucking crapshoot, especially on new exercises. Fuck, I don't know. Like cable tricep extensions. Do I really have more reps in me? Look, if I get some fucking progressive trance in my headphones and think of my childhood or some shit, I'll give you eight more reps where I thought it was two. So what the fuck was my RR this time? I don't know. But if I keep adding five pounds or keep adding a rep here and there, 
and I have to get them, I'll get them. And when I can no longer get them with all the psyching in the world, then it really is failure and then I don't have to question. So as long as you're starting at what's relatively hard, three-ish, four-ish RIR, and you're doing a little bit of progression proactively every single time, that process is a self-correcting process that will exhaust itself. And once it does, the entire time it took to exhaust itself was by definition productive training, uh, or most of it anyway. And it's incredibly informative in a retroactive way. It teaches you a lot about what you did. And then every mesocycle thereafter becomes much more finely tuned. You finish your last bent row session at 100 kilos, you know this next one's starting at 97.5. And someone's like, why not 95? You're like, because that'll be too easy. And they're like, how do you know? You're like, I have this whole, let me show you this whole last mezzoid. It's not that complicated. Because now I really know the shape of this road. I know where the bumps are. And if you don't, you know, you could, someone could say, you know, how do you know you're true mm -hmm. to RIR? You won't have an answer to that unless you have pushed it to failure. The only way to really know reps and reserve is to push it to failure every now and again. And this is coming from someone who says that failure training is usually overrated, but it has its place, especially as a big course corrector. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. We'll get to the, the next question, which is from uh, Weaver. Hopefully I pronounced that right. It's uh, spelt very differently to that, but I'm hoping I pronounced it right because I looked <laughs> it up. Last time I said it wasn't a name, but apparently it is a name. I think it's Irish maybe. Um, I think it's Weaver, but I'll go on with the question. What a what an <laughs> asshole, conquering, written, rule Britannia mentality you have. Like, oh, the Irish. Uh, I suppose there are people we conquered a thousand years ago. But anyway, <laughs> allegedly they have strange names. <laughs> Uh, I'll never understand it. <laughs> uh, so we will say, sorry, we will say, she she has asked, um, if Dr. Mike could conduct any research study in the area of bodybuilding, what would it be? Oh, realistic or not? I suppose she didn't specify. Sometimes we get these questions on YouTube, which are like, like unlimited funding and no ethical constraints. I was like, oh yeah, we're raising people with completely different circumstances and then like killing them at various ages to see muscularity. <laughs> um, Let's make it realistic then. Realistic study. It's less fun, but... Oh, much less fun, <laughs> of course. Yeah, but there's so many studies you could do. Um, a great study would be training people. Um, I'll just give an example of a really neat study a fatigue equated training study, which I believe has never been done. So you take one group and you train them at what is like two to three RIR, or three to four, the entire time for eight weeks or something. Another group goes to failure every single time. The volume between the groups is different and it's auto-regulated. Every single week it's adjusted up or down depending on fatigue questionnaire scores. The fatigue questionnaires have to be, the average has to be the same between groups. So for example, the two or three RIR, let's call it the three RIR group. Let's say it did four sets first week, scored a fatigue questionnaire average on a, a one to 10 scale of seven, okay? You say, okay, but really what we want is uh, seven the entire time because it's like pretty fatiguing, but not too crazy. So four it is. The failure group also starts with four sets but they score nine because, you know, four sets to failure, fucking beat your ass up. So it's okay, anything over a seven, automatically we scale the volume down. So then we go to three sets, right? Next week, 
And that group, the failure group next week scores a seven at three sets. Okay, sweet. Then we keep it constant. And then fourth four sets, the three RR group is now used to it a little bit. And then that second week, they score a five. So the next week, they get uh, five sets up from four. So they, they sort of modulate like this over time uh, to keep the fatigue the same. Okay. Why is this interesting? Mm. Because a lot of times people will say, uh, like folks like uh, Jordan Peters, for example. Um, will say failure training is great. It's the way to go. Um, and then people will point to these studies in undergrads that were like, well, failure training doesn't work as well because look, it didn't produce as much hypertrophy or the same, but uh, no difference. Right? So, so what's up with that? Well, uh, these studies are almost all, all, all of them are volume equated. Those five sets to failure versus five sets not to failure produces the same results, but a lot more fatigue. But hold on a sec. Maybe if the failure group trained less, they wouldn't be as hampered by fatigue and they would get even better results or the same results, but with like half the work. Like what if we found out that three sets to failure was the equivalent hypertrophically of five sets not to failure, but took like way less time and was more fun? Uh, maybe there would be more of a place for failure training. Or we could find out that failure training, as I would suspect, is so radically fatiguing for how much stimulus it gives that it's like, yeah, you know, your volume to get the same fatigue in a failure state has to be so low that you actually get considerably less hypertrophy. And then we'd be like, well, the fuck are we going to failure all the time, right? But a lot of times we compare states that are unfair uh, to both conditions. People say like, well, you got to train to failure. I look at the program, like, yeah, motherfucker, you do four work sets of workout. No fucking shit. I would go to failure too if I trained like a fuck pussy like you barely do any work. Like, do eight sets and you won't have to go to failure all the time. But then other people say, like, failure training sucks. I tried failure doing 20 sets <laughs> a session and I almost died. And it's like, who the fuck does that? Nobody does 20 work sets to failure, you idiots. Uh, and it's unfair. And even some of the studies are like that. So I think the, the study like that that's fatigue equated could compare all kinds of variables, including training to failure and so on and so forth, training uh, isolations versus machines, so on and so forth, that has a real, real, real world anchor, which is like per the fatigue cost, being that the fatigue cost is the same, which one of these modalities is more effective than the other? And then you get some real data off that shit. I think that will be interesting because I know a lot of people will say, basically it's personal preference, we either train harder with less uh, or you train less hard but you do more and it's like much for muchness. Whereas that would give an actual kind of concrete answer of, is it much of a muchness or is one way actually superior than the other? Totally. Which would be interesting. Uh, totally. I, uh, just on a side note, uh, I understand what people are saying when they say it's, it's all about personal preference. Personal preference definitely enters the equation, but I think it enters as more of a layered variable on top of what actually works best. And I would be really, really curious what works best on like a brainless human, you know, like a machine human designed to lift. Because then maybe you could learn to prefer whatever was best. Like, like so, so far, I think I've used this analogy before, like for example, some languages are just better for communicating technical concepts about science and math than others. Um, they just don't, you know, and some languages are much better for communicating emotion or love than others. And if you were born just speaking a certain language, then yeah, just sort of like, you know, that's the language you're going to use and you have your limitations. But like, if you are able, you know, to live in the year 2050 and we have neural implants and you can learn a language in like three seconds and you know, Chinese, 
then you could just fucking learn the best language to communicate whatever it is you need because it comes essentially at no cost. So like knowing which language is best for what outside of what you speak or what you personally prefer. Like I love hearing the French language. Like that's nice, but is it best to describe how rockets move, you know, versus how lovers move or something? And if it's not, then just don't fucking use it. So I, I really have reservations about when people overuse the personal preference thing. When they're like, well, because, you know, people like discover that in 2009 or something on the internet, like it's all about preference. Like it's not all about preference, you know, like uh, for the bodybuilding stuff, since that seems to be a topic we talked about earlier, it's like, you know, someone could say like, do you like to carve up on brown rice or white rice or pasta? Maybe it is preference. But if someone's like, yeah, I like to carve up on pizza, you're going to be like, I'm like, eh. what about all the sodium and fat? Like really? I think you can do better. You know what I mean? Objectively, you can do better. Now, uh, so there is definitely room for personal preference, but I think finding out what works physiologically, better or worse, is a really good idea. Because like, I'll put you this way. And this is, this is why one of the reasons why competition and not formal competition, even just Instagram or just looking at your own pictures is really cool. It anchors you. At the end of the day, we're not mostly in the gym to just have fun especially in our audience, we're here to get fucking results. That's why people listen to Steve Hall's podcast. They want fucking results. They're tired of just fucking around. And I kind of want to know what gives me the best results. And then maybe I won't really, really prefer. I'll be like, okay, I'm okay with not getting the best results. But like if you play second at a bodybuilding show to someone and they place first, you know, the next macro cycle you do for your next show you're going to talk to your coach and he's going to be like, what do you prefer to do? Be like, fuck prefer. Let's fucking do what it takes to win. You know what I mean? Like, do you think Phil Heath does things that he like prefers to do versus not? I'm inclined to believe that that's less likely the case. And when he's preparing for the Mr. Olympia, like a perfect example, Brandon Curry, do you think he likes to leave his home state of Tennessee in the United States for literally months at a time to go live away from his family and, fucking young children in Kuwait, which is fucking 10,000 miles away. Of course he doesn't fucking like to do that. But he's there to take the supplements, to get the great training, to eat the food, and to be serious about bodybuilding so he can win the Mr. Olympia. Like, does he prefer? He has his own gym in Tennessee, which is like one of the best gyms in the fucking world. He could train there. But at a tiny, tiny margin, being in Kuwait is better, objectively. Does he prefer it? Of course he fucking prefer. That's insane. But if you asked him, you're like, well, wouldn't you rather be at home with your family? He'd be like, yes. He'd be like, well, why don't you just do that? It's all preference. He'd be like, because I want to win the fucking Mr. Olympia. Like, that's it. So, you know, we're not all training for the Olympia. I sure as hell I'm not. But I would at least like to know the sort of the landscape of like what's best objectively. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, because, you know, preference can be, it's a lot of it's up here. People say, well, I really love training to failure you can learn to love technique focused RP revive stronger style training that you can learn to just fall in love with. And then you love it later. Maybe. And if not, fuck it, you can go back to training the failure, but at least know what you're training off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is, it's just, I always, I was trade off is exactly the word. It's like I clients will often like say they want to do this or whatever it might be. And I'll describe why we haven't chosen that route. And tell them the trade-off so i can say we can do what you're suggesting we can get results but there's a trade-off because i mean you have to be kind of honest and tell them the trade-off so i can i can completely agree and at the end of the day i'm always just about like results are kind of they're what i really want that is my preference so whatever gets those best tends to be the way i want to go that's awesome you got to quote yourself on instagram that'd be a great (laughs) quote results are my preference steve hall (laughs) i like that
So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another a really cool community for people within our little niche. It's going to be a website that will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.